Famished Craving, Reflections on the Role Fame Has Played in Human Affairs, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 1. We're calling the series The Famished Craving, which is a paraphrase from a a phrase out of a poem by T.S. Eliot, Gerontion. The subtitle of the series is The Attention of Others, the fascination for the famous and the need for faith. And the relevant lines from the T.S. Eliot poem are the following. History has many cunning passages, contrived corridors and issues, deceives with whispering ambitions, guides us by vanities. Think now. She gives when our attention is distracted. And what she gives, gives with such supple confusions that the giving famishes the craving. End quote. So therein lies our topic, the famished craving. It has been said that a, quote, celebrity is someone who is famous for being well-known. It is a definition that underscores one of the most curious aspects of contemporary life. As uniquely modern as it is, however, fascination for those whose chief distinction is that large numbers of people are fascinated by them goes all the way back to the dawn of human culture. And that, in part, is what I want to talk about this morning, the dawn of human culture and how it, and how it uh, manifests this particular conundrum. With each passing day, however, it is becoming clearer that the ever more vertiginous fame, fad, and fanfare phenomenon that has come to dominate popular culture is a symptom of a deepening spiritual, social, and psychological crisis. In order to understand this crisis and to appreciate how uniquely Christian spirituality and Christian discipleship address its underlying malaise, we will undertake a historical survey of the anthropological and psychological role that fame has played in human affairs. Using this survey as a backdrop, we will rethink today's social and psychological presuppositions and ponder anew the anthropological and psychological implications of Christian conversion. The catalyst for our analysis of the contemporary cultural and spiritual situation will be a richly illustrated historical review of the meaning and function of fame in social and psychological life. We will discuss the anthropological origins of fame, its primitive religious manifestations, its inherent ambiguity, its fragility and tendency to change its valence from positive to negative, its historical metamorphosis, its role as a secular form of salvation, its modern breakdown into the 15-minute allotments Andy Warhol predicted, and the recent emergence of pure fame, one based on neither accomplishment nor moral distinction. As the subtitle of the series indicates, we will be using this survey as a backdrop for further reflections on the anthropological meaning of the Christian revelation and the psychological ramifications and the ontological effect of Christian discipleship. So, before I go on, uh, I mentioned ontological effect. And so, um, I have to go back and deal a little bit here with these big words. Almost everything I do has a kind of diptych quality, which is to say that I, I want to look at the world, the historical world, the cultural world, the religious world, the spiritual uh, situation that we all live in and the spiritual quandaries and so on in two ways. One is anthropologically, 
and the other is ontologically. Ontology is the study of being, that's to say the study of being in its specific human sense, if we're studying human ontology. And anthropology is the study of culture, of cultural development and cultural dynamics. And I want to emphasize that because for, for most of us, if we look around the world and we pick up the paper or even uh, uh, consult uh, some esteemed sources, we, we are told or it's implied that what's, the, that what's going on in the world is political or social or uh, cultural even, moral, psychological, etc. And I don't think it's that. I think we have to, under, to really understand what's going on, I think we have to understand it anthropologically and ontologically. So that underneath social, political, cultural, even moral concerns often is an anthro anthropological dynamic that we must better understand. And all anthropology, because we are, I feel, uh, homo religiosus, we are religious beings, all anthropological understandings are religious understandings. Fundamentally, all, uh, uh, any serious anthropology has to be a study of religious experience. So, and there, then you get to the place where anthropology and ontology touch one another in the religious realm. So if you take them both down, at the base of each is the whole religious question. On the other hand, if we start from the other perspective, people say, well, look at what's going on in the world. We see all of this psychological instability, psychological uh, symptoms developing with incredible rapidity in the modern world. And so we say, well, we've got a psychological problem, or it's a sociological slash psychological problem. And many people have observed what's perfectly obvious, which is that it's a spiritual problem. But I think the best approach is to ask questions of ontology, nam namely the nature of our being. Now, what kind of creatures are we? And as I said, I think both anthropology and ontology come down to the question of religion. But at another level, or in another way of looking at it, it comes down to the question, each comes down to the question, that is at the heart of René Girard's analysis of our situation, which is the question of mimesis, the question of imitation. We are profoundly, as Aristotle said, what distinguishes us from the from other creatures is the, is, is the power of our mimetic predilections, our imitative potential. We could not have all of these incredibly sophisticated social skills were we not as mimetic or imitative as we are. We are profoundly mimetic and imitative. We moderns, for reasons that are very convoluted and we'll get into in the course of the next few weeks, I hope, we moderns are completely embarrassed by that. We, we have this myth that we must be autonomous and not imitative, and so we're always imitating somebody who was, not Im who was imitating somebody else who was trying not to imitate and so on. So that we live in this crazy sort of Alice in Wonderland world when it comes to imitation, but we are profoundly imitative, and all you have to do is open your eyes and see, and they, there it is. So at one level, the anthropological and ontological diptych that's, that I'm presupposing comes down to the question of religion. At another level, it comes down to the question of mimesis. And so I want to, uh, I want to explore that. This is, these are very quick little sketches that I'm doing right now, and I hope in the next 
in the next uh, weeks we'll we'll uh, draw them out. I especially want to begin with something that played such a crucial role for uh, for us in the in the last two series at least that we did the gift of self and then the little thing on the Trinity, and that is some insights by two French. Uh, well, a French theologian and a French philosopher, who, by the way, were uh, f- apparently friends and at least, or at least influenced each other, and they were contemporaries, and that is uh, Henri de Lubac and uh, Gabriel Marcel. De Lubac is a is a theologian and a philosopher, and uh, Gabriel Marcel is an existentialist philosopher. And de Lu- so these are these are touchstones, you know. In in what we do here, we have these little things that we these little polished phrases that we echo over and over again as a way of reminding us of the central themes. And de Lubac is, is marvelous because, uh, both de Lubac and Marcel are marvelous because of their emphasis on the significance of the issue of ontology, the issue of being. And so de Lubac an- analyzes the problem, the modern problem, modern spiritual problem, as the lack of ontological density, or you could say the waning of ontological density, which is absolutely incredible. And we'll come back to this uh, next week and the weeks after. But that is to say, when we think of the question, when we think of our, when one looks out and sees certain psychological manifestations and symptoms occurring uh, so rapidly and on so many fronts in our world, it's it's easy to to make the assumption that we have a psychological problem, as I said a few minutes ago. Underneath that is this ontological problem. And de Lubac has put his finger on it precisely, the vanishing or the waning of ontological density. And Gabriel Marcel echoes that, and he analyzes it in terms of the loss of, quoting Marcel, the loss of ontological moorings. And in the Judeo-Christian tradition, The ontological mooring is always in God. It's always in prayer. So that those, there you have the the bottom line, so to speak, in the analysis of the modern world. Okay, now again, I say that now because I want that to be key for us as we go through the weeks ahead, but also because for the next while you're going to wonder where all that went because I'm going to talk about something that won't seem like I'm talking about that at all. So I predict that every five minutes, a little thought will come into your mind, and it will be, why is he doing this? What is he talking about? And I want you to just answer that little thought with the, the, with the following. It's laying the groundwork for what we're going to talk about later. And, it's going to, and we're going to talk about some things that are not very happy things, really. Uh, they're simply historical facts or anthropological facts, and they're not very pleasant. Nevertheless, we have to, you know, the good news always presupposes the crucifixion. The reason the first Christians uh, had to emphasize the fact that their revelation was good news is because people looked at the cross and thought, that doesn't look like good news to me. You see, it always happens in the prologue to the Gospel of John. It says, uh, the light shone in the darkness and the darkness could not overcome it. So we go to that darkness and you see in that suddenly emerging the light that is the light of the world. So we shouldn't be afraid of the darkness. I was given the Pope's book for Christmas and, and the theme 
that runs through it, which I think is the, the Pope's theme for his, his pontificate, is be not afraid. And so anyway, I, I mention that because now we're going to talk about some dark things. It's not going to seem like this has much to do with ontology or anything else, but it will lay the groundwork, I hope, for what we're going to talk about uh, later on. My assumption is that culture as we know it is unraveling. It's unraveling because its fundamental myths and rituals are being deconstructed, to use a fancy uh, fashionable academic term, are being deconstructed by the revelation of the cross. And so the biblical revelation itself is at the heart of the, of the cultural uh, crisis of our time. That's not to say that we should... Now, we, we're very close here to Nietzsche. You see, Nietzsche said, ah, oh, this biblical thing is a terrible virus and we've got to get rid of it because it's going to destroy our, the great heroic principles on which culture always depend. And he was absolutely right. Uh, the, the, but you see, what, what the biblical tradition also does is that it teaches us, or it ought to, how to live without all of that. It teaches us to live in, in ways where we don't need that the, the, the ordinary sacrificial apparatus of culture. And so my assumption is that we're in a cultural crisis. We're also in a psychological crisis or ontological crisis as a result of that. They are in tandem. You can't analyze one without the other. And, and that's the crisis of our time, and it's coming about because the myths and rituals of conventional culture are undermined by the biblical revelation, especially by the revelation of the cross. So, if it's culture that's falling apart, we have to understand what it is that's falling apart. Why is it falling apart? And, and, and so on. And why, why would something like the crucifixion be so, uh, have such a, a debilitating effect on the myths and rituals of ordinary cultural life? So that's what I'm going to try to do here for a few minutes is to talk about that. Most of what we're going to do in the weeks ahead is we're going to talk about the, the questions of spiritual questions, ontological questions, psychological questions, and so on and so forth. The other half of the diptych. But as I said, they, they are, they're together. Like all good diptychs, they're hinged. And we have to, we have to take into account the anthropological issues and, and then uh, use those to understand the psychological and ontological issues. So, and again, I apologize for those who've sat through versions of this before. One of my goals in life is to find the perfect ballpoint pen, to find the perfect razor, and to find and to achieve the the perfect quick summary of what I'm about to do. I've never, I've, I'm still the search is on in all three cases, but there you have it. So the question is, the the primal scene. Where does culture come from? If culture is falling apart, what is it that's falling apart, and why? What are its what are its uh, fundamental dynamics? So the question is, how did it start? It's the hardest thing in the world to figure out how culture starts. It's like how did the Big Bang start? You you have certain emanations that you can go back to. They're all post-cultural, uh, so you can't. There's a there's a barrier in a way. So you have to rely on certain circumstantial. Uh, information about culture. We have the myths of early cultures. We have certain remnants, f 
physical remnants of early cultures. Uh, we know certain things about cultures. We know, for instance, that all cultures had a sense of the sacred and that there was a tremendous uh, division between the profane and the sacred. And all cultures were religious in precisely that sense. And they all had rituals that uh, the purpose of which was to, was to keep the sacred in its place and to keep the gods placated. And that these rituals were sacrificial, that they involved uh, bloodletting sacrifices. Animals or even people were killed in these rituals. So right away, if we're trying to work our way back to the beginning of culture, we have to ask questions about that and see what it might tell us about what went before it because all of these rituals are obvious reenactments of the founding of the culture. The sacrifices that are at the center of these rituals are reenactments of the birth of culture and they are very typically preceded by a violent crisis that's a quasi-ritual quasi-spontaneous sometimes crisis. And I'll talk about some of those in a few minutes. Uh, so there's, these rituals are preceded by a, a, a violent crisis that is to some extent staged as part of the ritual, but to some extent always gets out of control a little bit or always threatens to get out of control a little bit. This is not in every case, but in enough so that one sees that this is an important uh, motif in, uh, in, in archaic cultural life. Or this violent crisis may be a crisis of all against all, a kind of what in later, uh, later times we refer to as the carnival, you know, the Mardi Gras, where everything is all jumbled around and uh, there are no cultural distinctions and violence is always just, just below the surface. Or it may be something much more explicit, a kind of clan warfare. Some, sometimes in these cultural rituals you have, we ha you have two clans that stage a kind of... Uh, a kind of dance, warfare dance, which actually begins at the, as, the, as the ritual heats up. This uh, dance threatens to become open conflict, and so it awakens a certain terror in the community, which plays an important role in setting the community up for the catharsis, which is always the killing of the victim. So you have reenactment of the founding of culture, which is a sacrificial one, <coughs> Uh, and it involves it's, uh, the sacrifice is preceded by this staged conflict, uh, and the, the cathartic resolution of the conflict coincides with the killing of the sacrificial victim. So these are very strong circumstantial pieces of circumstantial evidence. Early uh, in the anthropological uh, uh, studies into these things, anthropology is a fairly late science. Uh, and I could get into the emergence of anthropology. It, it in some ways, is the quintessential Western science. It's the study of culture by people who are no longer entirely contained in, inside one of them. Uh, but in early uh, studies of these things, it was thought that myth comes first and that myth was the product of the fertile imagination and that ritual was simply a reenactment of the uh, basic motif in, in the myth itself and that ritual was a kind of sympathetic, sympathetic magic. It's now perfectly clear that uh, ritual comes first, even if ritual and myth emerge uh, simultaneously, that in a fundamental sense, ritual comes first because it's ritual that is reenacting, that's the literal, or the, not the literal, but the, but the figurative reenactment uh, of, uh, of the founding event. And behind both myth and ritual lies the actual prior event whose collective violence the ritual discreetly reenacts. 
and it reenacts it for the purpose of reinvoking the cathartic social solidarity and primitive religious frenzy that accompanied the original violence. And again, very often, the religious figure presiding at the ritual reenactment personifies in explicit or implicit ways the original victim or serves as his contemporary representative. The central religious figure exudes a power that is intimately linked to the fact that at least for the duration of the ritual, he is the, made the focus of the society's religious terrors and fascinations. He is, as Shakespeare says of Hamlet, the observed of all observers. And this, by the way, is how all of what I'm talking about right now plays into what we're going to be thinking about, which is this whole business of fame. Fame, in the modern sense, is, a, is an attenuated remnant of the primitive sacred. And fame in our world isn't working. Fame in our world falls apart overnight. It's very tenuous. It's coughed up very quickly and it disappears and turns into its negative. No sooner is somebody... Uh, you know, famous in some positive sense, then they're on the cover of the National Enquirer. And then the talk shows, and then the, you know, and it's all. So fame in our world isn't working, and it isn't working for the same reason that the sacred isn't working. Now, I'm going to have, fame is a very, obviously, very complex thing. I'm going to have some very positive things to say about fame in the next few weeks. Okay, so I'm not, it's not an easy thing to to uh, dispense with, but nevertheless, I just just to say here, one of the reasons I'm getting into this is because I'm going to focus now on the central cultural figure in these archaic societies, and that's the figure that that represents in those societies what this sort of lame, goofy thing we call fame represents in our society. Except in those cultures, it's more or less held together, and in ours, it doesn't. It's a very attenuated, uh, insubstantial nothing which uh, comes and goes and has no significance, by and large. Okay, so anyway, this f r central religious figure represents the victim or is, is the personification or somehow uh, is part of the sacred system and therefore is the observed of all observers. We know from... This, I'm, this is based on substantial anthropology. We know from myths and so on and so forth that... The, the, victim, the culture's first victim is divinized and the divinization of the victim and, using quotation marks here, the ordination of the priest are related phenomena. The priest always represents, the priest slash king always represents, stands in the place of the victim. And the process that leads, now this is a little complicated, but bear with me. The process that led to divinization was the collective violence that ended in the death of the one who's later divinized. The process that leads to divinization, to, to, uh, uh, to regarding this figure, this figure that's now been slain by the mob as a god, uh, was the collective violence. Central to that process was the violence that, that, uh, that ended in the death of the one who's divinized. We later... Later, these victims are demonized when the mob begins to form around this, these 
victims, they're demonized. It's the same process. We, we're, we miss the point if we think that that's different from the divinization process. The purpose of primitive religion is to ward off the gods and the sacred violence that they represent and to keep them in their place. So our distinction between demons and deities is one that doesn't fit the primitive experience. For the primitive people, that's all the same thing. The gods are just as terrifying as we think of demons being. You see what I'm saying? So divinization and demonization may make a big difference to us. It's not such a big difference in the primitive world. The point is not whether it has a positive or negative valence on it. The point is whether or not it represents an other. In other words, whether this figure is literally taken out of the human community and made into some kind of transcendent figure, whether this transcendent figure is a, is a, uh, is a demon or a god is less significant than the fact that it's taken out. It's made an exception. It's the stone the builders rejected. It has to be taken out, and the taking of it out is the scapegoating act that creates the solidarity. That's why the metaphor of the, the stone the builders rejected is absolutely incredible. It's perfect, because the act of building is precisely the rejecting of that stone. It's not that, it's not that there are all these nice stones, and then there's one they don't like, and they throw it out, and they build all the nice. Throwing it out is the act of building. It's the act that generates the culture, cultural solidarity. And whether they throw it out because they regard it as a demon or as a god doesn't matter fundamentally. It's the same process. And I realize this is a little bit too quick and too, uh, uh, too uh, complex, but I just want to set us up for looking at, at uh, some examples of that. There's a little hint of this, by the way. In a, in a week, we're going to celebrate Martin Luther King's birthday national celebration of his birthday. In our world, instead of divinizing or demonizing, what we do is that our forebearers demonized and scapegoated, and then we turn around and whitewash the tombs of the prophets that our fathers murdered. It's a perfect metaphor. It's right there in the New Testament, you see. Uh, so we... We demonize, divinize, so to speak, in quotation marks, uh, always looking back and r repenting of the transgressions of the past. And it's right there in Martin Luther King's commemoration of his birthday. There were, he, was, he was demonized in many respects by people earlier, and now he's divinized in quotation marks, you see. So this, is still very, this process is still very much with us. Anyway, what I want to talk about is the birth of culture because culture is now in the process of coming apart and we need to know the mechanisms. Before the victim is killed, the fascination, social fascination that is focusing on the victim is building. It builds as the polarization takes place. The crisis in the, in the ritual, the crisis is this, the staged war of all against all, or the staged civil war of the two clans or something, but it reaches a kind of frenzy, and then the polarization takes place, which begins the process of setting up the situation for the, for the death of the de designated victim, or it begins to designate the victim. And in the original situation, this happens spontaneously, and the underlying dynamics of it are, are uh, intelligible. I won't get into them right now. But the point is that as the polarization begins to take place, 
the figure that's being that's being uh, exempted that's becoming the stone the builders are going to reject in the act of building their cultural solidarity as that begins to take place that figure becomes the observed of all observers and the observed of all observers is simply a synonym for prestige it may be a negative prestige it may be a positive prestige prestige means literally etymologically the word means a uh, a trick a sleight of hand a magical thing you see prestige is simply uh, all of the, it's it's all of the it's the glances of all of the people reflected off of the person who on whom their glances are directed back onto the people who are glancing what I, what I want to point out here is that this figure before the victimization begins to take on an enormous aura and is then the that's when the the notions and and they become they're, they're spontaneous notions they're not they're not cognitive in the first instance but that's when the experience of numinosity of this figure uh, begins to emerge this figure can occasionally acquire enough social prestige prior to his victimization to be able to postpone his victimization to be able to take charge of the ritual in which he is the victim and if he can take charge of that ritual he can and if he can postpone it postpone the sacrificial climax or the scapegoating climax long enough the longer he postpones it the more he acquires certain power the more he can take the more power over this process he can he can acquire and then at the moment when the, it's time for him to die he may in fact be able to offer a surrogate victim and it's the offering of this surrogate victim that brings conventional culture into being because then you have the old victim doesn't die and therefore precipitate another crisis he reigns and offers a surrogate victim in his place and then you have the king priest shaman at the center of the sacred uh, uh, enterprise and all of culture then begins to elaborate around this is i'm doing all this very quickly but i'm going to give you some examples uh, right now that i think will uh, that I think will help flesh this out. What I want to say is, what the, the way Girard says it, uh, and for those of you who are not aware of this, I'm drawing on the work of René Girard, who's a cultural theorist uh, who I think has made the great uh, breakthrough in this area. Girard expresses it this way. The king is the victim with a suspended sentence. And that sounds absolutely ridiculous until... You look at the data, and then it's perfectly clear. And I'm going to show that. For, for example, you know, as, as will come out in some things I'm going to do in a second, there's a hint of this in the Old Testament. When Saul is chosen, sometimes the victim is chosen by lots. Sometimes the king is chosen by lots. Uh, it's very interesting. The, the drawing of lots is used to choose kings and to choose victims. And sometimes the people chosen to be kings like Saul in the Old Testament, run and hide when they're chosen. And there's a little anthropological vestige there of a truth, you see. That there's something about this. So the king, so the king is a, the victim with a suspended sentence, and I'll show that very dramatically in, in a minute. And speaking of Saul, the king is also the one who's 
chief duty is when the sacrificial appetite in the society, when there's enough of a crisis that, the, that, a, that a need for a scapegoat emerges, the king slash priest slash shaman is the figure who becomes the, whose task it is, whose supreme task it is to provide a surrogate victim to satisfy that appetite. And if he can't do it, he's no longer capable of fulfilling his role. And he becomes the victim because he's the designated victim all the while. And in the, and in the Old Testament, the priest, it's very explicit in the Old Testament, the, the priests are the designated victims. And if things go awry, they, they're, they're sort of the first line of defense. If the sacred comes into play, and the sacred is always violent, the primitive sacred is always violent, the priests are the first to have their life on the line. And, and the king is simply a, 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 a chief priest in, this, in speaking anthropologically. So, for example, Saul... Saul refuses to enforce the ban, which is that this, in, this, uh, in this war against the neighboring tribe, it means everything is killed. Men, women, children, cattle, livestock, everything is totally laid waste. And Saul refuses to enforce that ban. And Samuel, the prophet, says he's not worthy to be king anymore. He doesn't carry out that role. Now, it sounds like I'm being nasty to the biblical tradition. The biblical tradition is just very clumsy at mythologizing its own sacred violence. There's plenty of it there, uh, but it's very clumsy at mythologizing it, and that's why it's such a... And that's why it deserves a place. Even these dark uh, biblical texts deserve a place uh, in, in the uh, canon regarded as inspired scripture because it shows us the process by which the revelation has broken in on us. Okay, so here's what I want to do. I wanted to go to some anthropological studies to show you what I was just talking about, namely that the king is a victim with a suspended sentence. And I want to use the uh, marvelous florilegium that uh, Elias Canetti uh, created in a book called uh, Crowds and Power. Canetti is a Nobel laureate for literature, but he, he was fascinated by anthropology, and so he and he found all the, particularly 19th century anthropological uh, observations, totally fascinating. And he gathered them up and commented on them, and it's absolutely incredible. And so he, he uh, gathers some things from um, all over, really. But in this instance, I'm going to refer to some 19th century field observations by a number of uh, anthropologists, uh, German and French mostly, uh, whom Canetti finds fascinating. One is Vesterman, another is uh, Monte, another is uh, Dujalu, du, 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 du I think I'm pronouncing that right, or uh, probably not. Um, in any event, these are, these are field observations in the, in the latter half of the 19th century. And uh, Vesterman, who wrote a book uh, called The History of Africa, notes that there's an amazing similarity of structure and institutions uh, among these, these various cultures that all these anthropologists were studying, that it may seem like this is a very unique and strange institution, but lo and behold, you find a, a version of it in other tribes and in other cultural settings. So we're talking about a, we're talking about a very, very uh, widespread motifs. 
And by the way, I have a friend, Simone Simonse, who's did some field research in this same area, equatorial Africa, in uh, and in the Nile uh, area, in the mid 1980s, and found extant cultures in which many of the things I'm going to describe are still true. So uh, it's it's not something that's relegated to history books yet, although it no doubt will be very quickly for for obvious reasons. Anyway, uh, so here's, Canetti uh, quotes uh, uh, Duchalou, who did some field research in Gabon. Now, Gabon is Equatorial, French Equatorial Africa. I don't know what Gabon is these days. Ah, my geography is behind the times. Anyway, here it is. Uh, so what... It, what he's describing is the coronation of the king, the new king. The old king is dead, and we find out by circumstantial evidence that he's been killed, but we don't know that yet. And the new king is being selected by a, a council of elders. And Dujalu observed this following ritual that he describes here. Here's what happens. The new king was walking, the king, the king elect, who doesn't know he's been elected king, is walking on the shore on the morning of the seventh day of the elders' deliberation. He was suddenly set upon by the entire populace who proceeded to a ceremony which is preliminary to the crowning and which must deter any but the most ambitious men from aspiring to the crown. They surround him in a dense crowd and then began to heap upon him every manner of abuse that the worst of mobs could imagine. Some spat in his face, some beat him with their fists, some kicked him, others threw disgusting objects at him, while those unlucky ones who stood on the outside and could reach the poor fellow only with their voices assiduously cursed him. A stranger would not have given a cent for the life of him who was presently to be crowned. Now, this is a ritual, and it's a, all rituals are reenactments of the founding event or the regenerating event, the cultural regenerating event. What is it reenacting? Well, one doesn't have to be a rocket scientist to realize it's reenacting some kind of mob violence against the figure who's becoming the king. That's the point I'm trying to make. This, this is the anthropological underpinnings for any understanding of fame. And we'll draw upon it later on when we get into more modern uh, considerations. So then uh, Dujalu goes on. Then, all of a sudden, everyone, while they're doing, beating and, uh, and uh, cursing the, this figure, all of a sudden, all became silent. And the elders of the people rose and said solemnly, the people repeating after them, Now we choose you for our king. We engage to listen to you and to obey you. Now this is very interesting because in this, it's, it's in that violence against the one, unanimity minus one. It's in that moment that this one becomes the exception. He becomes the exception. The exception in its powerful cathartic form takes place in violence. And it's only by transfiguring that violence and making that exception now a positive figure. But it doesn't start with the positive. If it starts with a positive, it's very likely to break down and turn into a negative one. And so, that, so it becomes a, it's, it's a negative one, and then suddenly the polarization flips quickly. 
and all the all the violence does is that it creates the exception. And once the exception is created, it's very easy to flip the polarity, to, to flip the valence. And by the way, it's the same way, the same is true the other way around. Once the polarity is created in terms of a positive fascination, it's very easy for it to flip and suddenly become the victim. So in any event, there, there you have it. Then uh, uh, Dujalu says, he, this, the new king, was then dressed in a red gown and received the greatest marks of respect from all who had just abused him. Okay, so um, Canetti then makes the observation, quote, the insults and blows he was subjected to before entering on his office were an intimation of what awaits him in the end. As he submits to them, he will submit to his ultimate fate. Now this is where we get, you see when Girard says the king is the, is the victim with a a suspended sentence, he's not just making that up. <coughs> That's a conclusion drawn from the study of anthropological texts like this one, ob- anthropological observations like this one. And it reminded me of, I th- wasn't it Lincoln's quip about um, being ridden out of town on a rail was something he would just soon avoid except for the honor involved? <laughs> There's a little bit of an anthropological uh, truth underneath that little quip. Uh, so here's another, th- in that regard, here's something else. And this is from another anthropologist, Monte, and this has to do with the uh, length of reign of the of the king. But notice this. Ex- I, when Girard says that the, the, vict- the king is the victim with a suspended sentence, here it is perfectly clearly. Canetti quoting Monte. Sometimes the length of his reign was fixed from the start. The kings of Jakun originally ruled for seven years. Among the Bambara, however, the newly elected king traditionally determined the length of his own reign. Quote, A strip of cotton was put around his neck and two men pulled the ends in opposite directions whilst he himself took out of a calabash as many pebbles as he could grasp in his hand. These indicated the number of years he would reign, on the expiration of which he would be strangled. Now notice, imagine this ritual in your mind's eye. They have it around his neck. The ritual is in process. And he simply reaches into the calabash, pulls out the, the number of stones which tell them how long to postpone the climax of the ritual. And his reign literally is the, the interim in the ritual. So that... Uh, he, a king's reign is the intermission in an elaborate coronation sacrificial ritual. Here's another example from an, uh, which Canetti also quotes. The newly elected king was made to run three times around a mound and while doing so was well buffeted by the dignitaries. On a later occasion, he had to kill a slave or sometimes only to wound him, in which case someone else would kill the man with the king's spear and knife. And this, you see, once the sacrificial appetite has been awakened, in other words, in original cultural settings, social solidarity and and the sacrificial appetite are the same thing. Social solidarity is generated, and still today, you know, you walk into the office, how do you... If everybody's in a cranky mood, how do you get everybody to agree? Well, you, you, you find the scapegoat and 
start the gossiping. And pretty soon you, you see, and that's a stupid example, but what I'm saying is it's a, it's a human reflex that is so powerful that uh, we find it all the time. Every day we fall into it in some way. So the generation culture needs social solidarity. The easiest, most powerful way to generate it is at the expense of the scapegoat, the stone the builders rejected. But once the sacrificial appetite is awakened, if that victim is not thrown to the crowds, then the, the one who's, who's presiding over the ritual has to offer a substitute victim. And the king is the designated victim. So that's why it says, Kennedy says, quoting from the anthropologist, on a later occasion he had to kill a slave or sometimes only to wound him, in which case someone else would kill the man with the king's spear and sword. Well, he, he, he's the, the, the king is the sacred executioner. He's the one that designates the surrogate victim so that, so that there will be someone to continue to reign but the sacrificial appetite will be satisfied as well. People now wonder, why, how do we do, how, why are we getting all these one-term presidents? And why are we getting one-term presidents and morally unsatisfying wars at the same time? If we, did, if, it, if we, the one-term presidency, the history of one-term presidencies and the, and the, and the inability to launch a good old-fashioned war where we have ticker tape parades when it's all over with. Those are related events. It's, it's back to Saul and the, uh, Samuel saying, you didn't, you didn't impose the ban and therefore you're unworthy to... I mean, anthropologically, it's the same phenomenon. I was going to say this later, but I, sh I think I'll just stop and say this now. We're going we're gonna to use this... I'm going to use this text as we think about these things. And you're perfectly welcome to use it as well. It's, it's called uh, The Frenzy of Renown by Leo Browdy. Now, I, I even thought about getting it for you, except the paperback is uh, out of print. It's $35 hardback. It's a four, excuse me, it's a 600-page book, and it's a ranging thing. I mean, it, it's marvelously full of historical detail, too full, as a matter of fact. He's, he has, Browdy has the same disease I have. He goes off on these things and, you know, <laughs> I mean, it goes on and on and on. But it's pretty interesting work. And the beauty of it is that uh, he didn't do all the work that needs to be done, which left me something to do, <laughs> which is to say he, he uncovers a tremendous historical uh, detail, but he does it without the benefit of Girard's reading of anthropology. So his, his, his understanding of things isn't sufficiently anthropological or ontological for that matter. So I say that as, not as a criticism of him. As a matter of fact, I'm glad that he didn't do it all because it leaves me something to do. I'm, I love his book and I want to go through it and just share with you some of the historical details and then use those historical details to see into the anthropological and ontological issues which Browdy himself for the most part, doesn't uh, doesn't explore. So that's just to tell you sort of the the text that I'm going to be using, and I'll be bringing it to you and quoting it to you uh, extensively as we go as we go through. Let me go back to Kennedy now. Um, again, this is this is laying the groundwork for a, a study of of fame. Kennedy talks about these kings. Are these 
kings greatly revered the way, you know, we revere uh, the the British royalty or something, or used to, or uh, is it is it some kind? You see, when we Westerners look at this, we think, oh, there's a tremendous. Uh, they just love their king, and uh, it's a trem this great outpouring. Uh, for it's not that. It's not that. And again, we're reminded that the king is the victim with a suspended sentence. There, the, the king has this aura, this prestige, this metaphysical power because he really represents the sacred and everybody is both fascinated by and terrified by the sacred and he, and he embodies that, that fascination and terror. But is it affection? No, it's not at all. I mean, it may be later on when when this thing begins to blend with Christianity in some sense, then you get a combination of things, and I'll talk about that later. But here, let me just give you an example of this. Kennedy uh, summarizes the field observations of uh, Dujalu in Nigeria, whose king is a divine being, and he says, quote, He, the king, was not expected to be a great personality, but was regarded rather as a living reservoir of those forces which make the earth fertile and seed flourish and thus bring life and well-being to men. The important thing for the king was that he be the exception, that he be outside the social order, that he be what Gerard calls an external mediator. What he, he could not be is one of the boys. He could not be one of the boys because as soon as he's one of the boys, civil war. As soon as he's one of the boys, all the fascination, all of the, the crazy metaphysical stuff that goes on in, in beings that are fundamentally religious starts to happen in the social order, and the social order boils over. The social order explodes because it has no transcendent reference point. And the king, having been made the exception, is the the uh, the excluded, extruded exception, the fascinating one, on whom all cast their, their glances, their metaphysical anxieties and so on, and therefore relieve the social order of that. The modern world is a world in which there's, that's not happening, and the whole thing is blowing apart. It's like a hand grenade. So in the archaic societies, he could not, his, his exceptional status had to be maintained at all costs. So here's what Kennedy says. The king rarely appeared in public. His naked foot must never touch the ground, for if it did, the crops would be blasted. He was also forbidden to pick up anything from the ground. If he fell off his horse in earlier times, he was promptly put to death. So you see, it's not affection. It's he has to be outside. It might never be said that he was ill. If he did contract any serious illness, he was quietly strangled. He was believed to be in control of the rain and the winds. A succession of droughts and bad harvest indicated the waning of his strength, and he was secretly strangled by night. You see, he's a machine for keeping some kind of sacred focus in play in the culture, but one that is always outside of the ordinary social arena. And um, Kennedy goes on elsewhere. If a king proved his worth, he would in earlier times rule for seven years and then be killed at the harvest festival. If the ruler's excesses threatened to harm the country in the meantime, or if bad harvest or any other national calamity occurred, it was always possible to discover some breach of taboo committed in the course of his innumerable ritual duties and thus check his presumption. presumption. 
and of course to also executing. And that's why you have Oedipus, who not only has a club foot, but he's accused of incest and patricide. And the incest taboo is the one that comes up out of the, out of the depths of this sacrificial reflex. Do you, do you know that Marie Antoinette was accused of incest? It's absolutely, there was absolutely nothing plausible about it, but the point is it comes up out of that sacrificial appetite. So, uh, a couple of last things. In the, Canetti uh, uh, quotes Vestermann, German anthropologist, who studied the rainmaker kingdoms. This is also what my friend Simone Say uh, studied in his, in his work. And he says uh, the following, in order to preserve his powers of inducing growth and to keep him from harm, his person is hedged in, the king's person is hedged in by a great number of regulations and taboos which sometimes render him virtually incapable of action. Think of the movie The Last Emperor. Did, it, did you see the movie The Last Emperor? If you want to see a contemporary version of all of this, I mean a contemporary version, a 20th century version of all this. See The Last Emperor. It's pretty amazing. Okay, so then uh, he goes on. Vesterman goes on. He, the king, is never visible or only at certain times. He must never leave his palace enclosure or only at night or on special occasions. He is never to be seen to eat or drink. And then Kennedy says, The crucial thing about the king is his uniqueness. A people which may have many gods has only one king. It is important that he should be isolated. An artificial distance is created between him and his subjects and is maintained at all possible cost. Now, that artificial distance is the distinction between the sacred and the profane. It's absolutely essential to archaic culture. And the king is what makes it possible. He's the, the stone the builders rejected, the excluded one, the exception that makes possible cultural life. So I just have a couple of little things here uh, before. Because th these are what I'm going to share with you now is will serve us when we get to an analysis of the modern crisis. Quote, quoting uh, one of these anthropologists again from Kennedy's work, quote, physical manifestations such as coughing, sneezing, or blowing the nose are imitated or applauded. That's from Vestermont. The, the imitate, I said we're imitative creatures. Now, there's, imitation works uh, in a funny way in terms of the transcendent figures, the divine figures, whether they be uh, in, incarnate divinities that are ruling over society or or uh, you know transfigured into the uh, into the realm of the gods imitation is 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 a strange process sometimes you don't imitate at all there's certain things you don't imitate at all like in the greek pantheon you know if you imitate the gods that's a recipe for becoming a spider <laughs> or something you know what i mean you just don't do that uh, on the other hand all the imitative fascination is going in that direction so that it prevents each people from imitating each other to some degree and in this case, the imitation is required because these manifestations are manifestations of weakness. And you know, you know The King and I, the, the musical The King and I? Nobody must have his head above, above the king's head, you know. You must always, no matter how low he gets, you must get lower than the king. Or when the emperor, well, this must have been a problem for Napoleon, you know. People must, <laughs> everybody has to have their head lower than the, than the, the king or the emperor. Well, it's the same way. Here, he coughs, sneezes, or blows his nose. Everybody has to do it because otherwise there might be some presumption of superiority on their part. And then it goes on. 
Canetti then says, whatever good or bad traits the king possessed, whatever his vices, virtues, faults, or bodily defects, his companions and servants were at pains to imitate them. If the king was lame, his companions limped. We know that if one of the ancient kings of Ethiopia were maimed in any part of his body, all his courtiers had to suffer the same mutilation. You see? And then it says, at the court of, and then Kennedy says, at the court of Uganda, if the king laughed, everyone laughed. If he sneezed, everyone sneezed. Okay. A couple more things. Quote, if the king begins to age, his magical strength is threatened. It may grow weaker or disappear or evil powers may turn it to its opposite. Therefore, the aging king's life must be taken and his magical strength transferred to his successor. The king's person is of importance only so long as it is undamaged. The smallest defect renders the king suspect to his subjects. The constitution of these kingdoms is the physical constitution of the king himself. This is like Louis XIV or something. Isn't it? Um, he is sworn in on condition, as it were, of his strength and health. A king who shows gray hairs, whose eyesight deteriorates, who loses his teeth or becomes impotent, is killed or must commit suicide. He takes poison or is strangled. And finally, one last quote that's apropos of our world from Dujalu, the anthropologist. Quote, Between the death of a king and the installation of a new one, a period of lawlessness intervened. This, as we saw, found meaningful expression in the maltreatment of the king-elect. That's the story that we started with. But the same lawlessness might also be turned against the weak and the helpless. Among the Maasai of Ouagadougou, all criminals were released from prison after the death of a king. Murder and robbery and every kind of license were allowed. End quote. What is this? Why would that be? You see? And I would say it's this that if if the ritual that reinstalls the new king works it will only work because it reaches a, a it has a cathartic effect it will only have a cathartic effect if it's preceded by real terror and real frenzy that is to say the ritual if the ritual involves letting all the all the criminals and murderers out of prison it's because that kind of total breakdown of all social structures will unleash all the mimetic passions, and we'll talk about mimetic passions later, all the mimetic passions, all the frenzy, uh, all the terror, which will eventually polarize and focus itself on the designated victim, and then, and then the, and then the uh, valence will shift, the designated victim will be crowned, the social order and the surrogate victim offered to the crowd, and the social order will be restored. So it's pow very powerful. Now, what we have to realize is that the interregnum is this period in archaic societies, is this period of total chaos. And the interregnum means the collapse of the sacred. The structures of, of sacrality collapse with the death of the old king. A period of lawless anarchy intervenes and then there is the ritual of resacralizing the new kings now we live in a world where the old sacred system is deteriorating very rapidly and we 
cannot recycleize, and we can't do that because the biblical revelation has pulled the rug out from under that whole process because we, we now regard as Lord the victim of precisely that kind of scapegoating process. The cross is the revelation of the perversity of that whole process, so we cannot resacralize. So modernity, or the crisis that we're in, is precisely the crisis of the collapse of the old sacrality, the inability to, to conjure some kind of new sacral system, and therefore this, this deterioration breaking apart. Now, we don't... We don't it has been a gradual thing, but it's happening more quickly all the while. Nevertheless, and I don't say that to be apocalyptic because, to be honest with you, I'm full of hope. But it's, I'm full of hope not because I have, you know, Wendell Berry, the poet, said, uh, laugh though you have considered all the facts. Uh, I'm, I'm full of hope not because uh, I'm, I'm a, I'm a uh, sort of enlightenment optimist. I'm full of hope because the thing at the bottom of all of this is the biblical revelation and it's not going to let us down. Nevertheless, we have to see that the crisis in these archaic societies is a, a, a picture in miniature, archaic picture in miniature of the crisis of modernity. There was a picture in this morning's Time magazine of a march somewhere in Gaza, you know, which was a march of the Islamic radicals. And it was a huge crowd in this picture. With masks, these guys with masks on and guns in their hands and knives in their hands. And it was celebrating this this suicide bomber that had uh, killed himself and three Israeli soldiers or something. I didn't really read the story. But, you know, clearly this crowd had gathered to celebrate that. You know, that was sacred violence and they were conjuring. So we live in a world where there's still plenty of that. There was a story on the next page of the paper about a meeting that took place, which involved also a mass, that took place between uh, Cardinal Bernadine at Chicago and the the man who accused him of, of, of... of uh, sexual something or other, which turned out to be a false accusation. The guy had been under hypnosis or something. The guy dropped the charges. But meanwhile, Bernadine was, you know, subjected to the press process of scapegoating. And Bernadine asked to meet with this guy, and they got together, and they celebrated Mass together, and they, you know, oh, it was... And and, uh, Bernadine talked about it. It says the most... He said he's been a priest for 43 years. He says it's the most moving experience he's ever had. And so then you have that, in a, in a certain sense, that's, those are the two powers in the world. The bringing together. That's right. The question is, in, so on, page, on one page, and I'm not doing this to set up Islam, because there are plenty of Christian uh, scapegoaters around. There are plenty, I mean, there was this abortion killing last week, you know, somebody who thinks that's a Christian thing to do. So there's plenty of, so I'm not trying to set it up in terms of some kind of uh, simplistic uh, religious division. But if you have one page, which sa- on one page you have this group that's coming together to celebrate sacred violence and with gun in hand, literally, and knife in hand. And on the other page you have the story of another kind of coming together. 
It's one or the other, two anthropological structures. The, what Paul called the old anthropos and the new anthropos. And the new anthropos always involves a recognition that I am a sinner, I am a crucifier, I am a scapegoater, and I'm sorry for it. Now, lest we think that the anthropological situation that Kennedy describes as unique to either very ancient cultures or to those less developed African ones that so fascinated the 19th century anthropologist, let me share with you a few observations by the historian Christopher Dawson. In a book entitled Religion and the Rise of Western Culture, Dawson outlines the gradual process whereby medieval European kingship developed, and he points out that it emerged out of a tension between Christian influences and what he calls, quote, the primitive tradition of racial kingship, end quote, that predated these Christian influences. And here's what Dawson says in one place, quote, these elements, namely the primitive elements in kingship, these elements survived most fully in, in the Scandinavian north, which had been least affected by alien influence. By alien influence here, he means the Christian influence. In Sweden especially, the monarchy preserved its archaic religious character down to the 12th century, and the institution of kingship remained inseparably connected with the great sanctuary at Ingve Frey, at old Uppsala, of whom the king was at once the high priest and the human counterpart. It was from the Swedish tradition that we derive through Norwegian and Icelandic sources the fullest evidence concerning the priest-king, whose chief function was to offer sacrifice on behalf of the people for good harvest and victory in battle, and who was himself to be sacrificed if his offerings proved unacceptable to the gods. There you have it you see, Middle Ages, Europe. Uh, and then Dawson says, the, now this is, this is very important. Dawson says, the coming of Christianity to this Homeric world inevitably produced a social as well as religious revolution. You and I are living in the later stages of precisely that social and religious revolution. It's an anthropological revolution. It's an ontological revolution. And we're living in the latter days of it. So then Dawson says, though the kingship... Now, so what Dawson is analyzing is the, is the, the gradual emergence into that ancient world of the Christian revelation. And he says, quote, Though kingship lost its old divine prerogatives and much of its traditional magical associations with good harvest and victory in war by becoming merged in the wider unity of Christendom, it gained new prestige by its close association with the church, from which it gradually acquired a new form of sacredness. End quote. Now, one would immediately say, wasn't new enough. You know, what, what eventually became divine right kingship surely still had some of the old sacrality to it, no doubt. Uh, but nevertheless, what you see happening is the blending of two forms of sacrality. One that is, and I'm not going to use the word sacrality. I don't think I will unless I change my mind later on. But I tend not to use the word sacrality or sacred for the biblical or particularly the New Testament revelation. Just so as not to be confused. But it's not as though we, the New Testament is creating a, a completely desacralized world in one sense. It is if we think of the word sacred in terms of its primitive meaning, and that's more or less how I'm going to use it. 
perhaps we should use the word sanctity as an alternative to sacrality. And so the old system was the sacred system. And if we're going to live without the sacred system, we better, quick as we can, learn how to live sanctified lives because it takes sanctified lives to live without sacrality. So there you, there you, have, the, there you have the situation. Anyway, back to Dawson because uh, he's, he shows this problem so early. He, he says, quote, Yet at the same time, it may be doubted whether these gains were not outweighed by the loss of the heroic ethos of pagan kingship. And there you have in that one sentence, you have summed up Nietzsche's accusation against Christianity. You see that? Nietzsche says it's destroying these great uh, heroic qualities of culture without which, including sacrifice, without which uh, nothing can be preserved. The old heroic standards will all go. And he was right about that, you know. But Dawson is seeing that not in the 19th century, but way back. And Nietzsche too saw it way back. But so now, now notice this. Dawson says, the royal saints of Anglo-Saxon England were for the most part men who were defeated in battle by the pagans. Like St. Oswald and St. Edwin or men who resigned their crowns to become monks like St. Sebi. It was hard for warlike barbarians to accept the Christian ethic of renunciation and forgiveness in their rulers who had been the living embodiment of their pride of blood in the past. As we see from St. Bede's story of King Siegbert of Essex who was killed, quote, because he was wont to spare his enemies and forgive them the wrong they had done as soon as they asked him, end quote. He was killed. Precise, and that's just a version of Samuel condemning Saul for not carrying out the ban. You see, if you're not capable of being the sacred executioner, of being the one who designates the surrogate victim, then you can no, you're no longer of use to us culturally in terms of the structure. You see, and this is this is what happens when Christianity begins to break in on what Paul called the old anthropos, and uh, that's the world we live. We're simply living in the later stages of precisely this this uh, long historical process. 